Get ready for a week-long celebration of music, community and fabulous fun with Joy Radiothon 2024. Joy has the largest collection of rainbow podcast content in the world and you can help keep us out loud and proud by donating during Joy Radiothon 2024. Just go to joy.org.au slash radiothon. Mark it in your calendars because Joy Radiothon returns June 1st to 7th and remember, we all flourish with joy. You're on Saturday Magazine with Nevena and Macca. You just heard from Neil Farrow, civil society advocate who was present at COP27 in Egypt. Macca, who do we have next? Okay, so next, uh, Liam Byrne. And Liam is from School of Historical and Philosophical Studies at the University of Melbourne. It is 50 years and 15 days since uh, Gough Whitlam was elected and... Perhaps there might be some lessons for our current Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, uh, to learn from that. Good morning, Liam. G'day, how are you going? Pretty good. 2nd of December, 1972. I remember it. I'm old enough to remember it. And uh, a very different time, uh, a very different economy, a very different world environment. Um, The Whitlam government was known as or often referred to as big government. You look at the size of the government then as a percentage of GDP versus now, it's very different. Uh, Government is much bigger now. What are the things you think the current government or or particularly the the current Prime Minister might be able to look back on and learn from 1972 to 1975? Well, it's uh, slightly intimidating to start right after you said that you mentioned it. So, you know, hopefully I get everything right. Because if I forget anything or get anything wrong, you're going to jump in and say, no, 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 terrible historical mistake. (laughs) Well, I think that the era of uh, Whitlam has captured the imagination for, you know, obviously the people who were alive then, but subsequent generations for a reason. Um, It was a moment in which government made really clear, practical improvements in people's lives. You know, it didn't come in and try and run people's lives and then tell people what to do. But it created the conditions for people to live a bit, you know, to seize more opportunities and live in a more decent and dignified way across whole swathes of the community that hadn't had it before. And I think one of the, the important things is this often gets forgotten about Whitlam, but one of Whitlam's greatest accomplishments, in my opinion, was that he um, launched a program that brought indoor sewage and indoor plumbing across the suburbs yes. of, uh, of Australia, particularly Western Sydney. And, you know, I got that right? Good. Absolutely. And there's, <laughs> you know, there are. If you look at uh, parts of outer eastern Melbourne and the seat mm. of, uh, I don't know what it's called now, but Diamond Valley, uh, yeah. you know, which was won purely on the poop vote. <laughs> the what vote, maker? The poop vote. <laughs> and, you know, it was the promise to deliver, you know, mains water and sewerage to these communities. It's difficult to imagine. Yes, we can think about regional Australia where part where sewerage isn't, and, and, and town water isn't available. There were parts of our capital cities and our regional centres that 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 didn't have have that. So, I mean, when you look when you look back, Liam, and I'll give you another one. May nineteen seventy four was the double dissolution election. Yeah. <laughs> so, when we look back, it was a reformist government. The current government, I think, would like to say they're a reformist government. Do you think the passion is the same or are the scars from the Whitlam years perhaps 
impacting on the amount of reform this government wants to do, even though it was you know fifty years ago. Most of them well, weren't. Most of them weren't alive. Well, I think the you know the governments that have followed the Labor governments that have followed the Whitlam era, I think clearly have maintained that you know understanding of that historical period. One of the things about the Labor Party is that it is deeply connected to its history, mm. um, and you know successive generations you know learn um, a lot. And you see that I think you know if you look at Anthony Albanese, a lot of his reference points have actually been predominantly to Hawke government, yeah, um, which of course was the Labor government that immediately followed the Whitlam government and did define itself in large part against what they saw as some of the mistakes of the Whitlam years. And I think that's important to recognise is that the Whitlam era was one of incredible accomplishment and transformation, but it was one of um, tensions, of conflicts and mistakes, and mistakes that were made by government as well. But I think that that's, you know, the real tension that the Labor Party has, is that on the one hand, it's a party of ambition, and it's a party of, you know, national transformation and getting big things done and so on. But of course, there's a difficulty there where if you try to achieve all change that you want at once, immediately... You know, that causes problems. Like you can um, run out of political capital very quickly. You can run up against budgetary limits very quickly. You can exhaust the sort of enthusiasm that exists in the community for change by trying to take too much on too quickly. And I think that's a lesson that subsequent Labor administrations have learned. So I suppose the real question is whether or not they've learned that too well. And sometimes that leads them to be slightly too moderate in the way they try to approach uh, government and what they want to achieve within the terms of government that they have. Some of the items on the, the current government's social policy agenda wouldn't uh, have got up under Whitlam. Uh, a lot of uh, LGBTI issues, they got very, very little currency during the Whitlam government. Um, if you had to rate the Whitlam government on a score out of 10 as being a reforming government versus perhaps the Hawke government, and the Albanese government, how would you score them? Well, firstly, got to say, the Albanese government, to give it their due, have had only a few months. Yes. So it's kind of hard compared to the others in that regard. And I think you know, has been setting up some pretty big, ambitious reforms um, as well. But of course, there is you know time for is requirement for time to actually judge about how effective they're going to be at that. But the, there is ambition in this government and what they've articulated. And I think a lot of that has been kind of missed in some of the commentary about referring to Albanese as being small target and so on. Well, you know, legislating the floor for climate action was actually a pretty big step in Australia. You know, having the ambition of having the very significant um, a constitutional referendum for a uh, constitutionally enshrined First Nations voice to Parliament, that is a big transformation, a necessary, important, mm. you know, a long-term change in Australia, which, you know, is going to be potentially one of the defining historical moments that we look back at and talk about what this generation achieved. So there is a lot to be sort of said there. I think it's hard to score exactly. I think that, you know, if you're trying to score Whitlam for change affected, uh, you, it would be, if it was out of 10, it'd probably be about 15. Uh, but in terms of how effective that was, in terms of making sure that that was done in a sort of like an orderly manner, which a lot of that change would be embedded down and sort of, uh, you know, ensure that it would be continuing, Unfortunately, you would probably mark him less, uh, a little bit less than that. With mm. Hawke, it's kind of hard because Hawke obviously is associated for a lot of people, um, kind of not with his policy, but more his personality. But, I mean, one of the most enduring reforms that um, all Australians rely on, really, which is the Medicare system, yes. that was introduced by Bob Hawke after Whitlam had tried to introduce it, um, had managed to get the legislation through, but was almost uh, immediately dismissed by the Governor-General pretty soon after that, and then that system was ripped up by his successor, Malcolm Fraser. So... I think there are you know, continuations of ambition um, and hopefully we'll see that today because, of course, the Medicare system is something that's in massive need of rejuvenation after being allowed to go into quite a bit of decay over recent times. Liam, famously, uh, 
Whitlam had the program and that contributed to part of the electoral appeal. Can you tell us a little bit about that and why that connected with the constituents at the time? Well, the program was this incredible sort of statement of ambition. Um, what Whitlam was referring to when he was talking about the program was a whole bunch of policy um, sort of areas that he developed in connection with others for the period of time that he was the leader of the opposition and kind of even before then. So when I said developing with others, I mean, obviously, other people in the Labor Party. But he also lent a lot on experts and people of great knowledge and authority in distinct sort of policy areas. And what he did was he brought all those different policy areas together in a one uh, sort of vision for Australia that he had, which is very explicitly about how Australia was going to go from uh, the past and go from uh, where we were as a country to embrace the opportunities of the future. And he said um, he had a very, very famous speech in 1972, and he opened it by saying that the election was going to be between, and this is his quote, the habits and fears of the past and the demands and opportunities of the future. And so what the program was, was it was a whole slate of policies that he wanted to introduce to modernise Australia, to bring the future into the present um, and sort of achieve the next uh, sort of stage of our country's development. I think the most important thing is it links back to that sewage issue was that the program was based around identifying the real needs in people's lives and communities across Australia and putting forward ambitious but practical policies that would help to alleviate those problems like building sewage systems, but also meant things like transforming higher education, uh, transforming sort of um, social relations, you know, uh, introducing new laws, for, uh, for instance, supporting um, changes to equal pay for women workers and so on. And it's about bringing Australia from, you know, kind of languishing in the past as we had been uh, to more where the Australian uh, people actually were at to at that point and making sure the government reflected that rather than kind of holding things back. I think one of the enduring, I don't know if I'd call it an achievement, but I'll call it that, of the Whitlam government was it gave the Australian public and the Australian voter, a taste for change and that change was possible and that our expectations of government were changed forever. That prior to that, we'd had Labor governments, you know, during the war and just after the war and then the Menzies government and Holt, Gordon, McMahon, uh, where there wasn't that much change. And, of course, Labor got burnt in the late 40s uh, when they lost to the Liberals with, with some of their legislation. I think, you know, the electorate's taste for change uh, was really encouraged by the Whitlam government and it delivered, and then subsequently we've got voters expecting change and their expectations of government have changed. Do you think the current government is going to continue to progress its agenda or do you think it might go a bit timid? Well, I think the... Um it's one of those circumstances, right? Time will tell. But yeah. I think that it's always important to look at the reference points and how people you know, who come to government, what they talk about in terms of how they understand their project and what it is that they want to achieve. So if you look at Whitlam, I mean, Whitlam didn't kind of come and sort of say, oh, Labor's never done anything in the past, but I will uh, do it all now. You know, he, he wasn't somebody who was sort of shy about lauding his own values. No. He did situate himself in that broader tradition, you know, and he's one of his great heroes, uh, uh, one of mine as well was John Curtin, the uh, Prime Minister during the Second World War. Yes. And he lauded Curtin because he dealt with the circumstances of the war, but he did it by creating something that's sort of more equal um, and a better society afterwards by you know, creating all these economic policies, like full employment, that would make sure that people had the ability to live dignified lives after the war was won. And that's what Whitlam wanted to do. Is he, didn't, is that he didn't want to come in and take over everybody's lives and change them. He wanted to create the conditions that would allow people to change their own lives, to embrace new opportunities that previously they'd been denied. And that's what the government was really all about. And that's 
that was reflecting something deep in the um, the electorate as well, is that people wanted change. And you say quite rightly, after 23 years of coalition government, people had, which is remarkable to think about, 23 years of consecutive government by the uh, Conservatives, people wanted something which would allow them to embrace the opportunities that they could see opening up all around the world and that they were demanding. You know, this, the Whitlam government wasn't the be-all and end-all of change in this period. There were social movements, there were people on the ground trying to create change. And that's been into the government. The government was able to, you know, unleash more of that energy uh, and, of course, create, as you say, for the first time for, in a long period, people could look at the government and it reflected them and their desire to make things better. Mm. I think when you look at you know, what's been happening this year in particular, is uh, I think it's pretty clear that the, the lessons of the election in uh, the federal election is that all across Australia that there are communities, there are individuals, and also groups of people who have just been ignored, locked out um, of the political system, uh, and really, they came together in that election and put a giant repudiation on you know, the Scott Morrison government, but also just the direction that Australia had been heading. And we see this around a whole array of different, you know, you know geographically located communities. But we also see it among, you know, women in Australia and, um, and al- allies who just couldn't stand the horrendous sexism of that government. People who were just sick and tired of a lack of action around climate change. So that younger people, you know, really rejected that government because they all want something better and believe that it's possible for something to, uh, better to be created, but that requires action. And that requires, of course, government action, but also requires action in our communities. And what I think one really strong lesson that was uh, sort of sent and um, one strong message was that the era of um, politicians completely ignoring the will of their communities is clearly over. And if there's one message from the Teal election, for, uh, electorates, for instance, I think it's that people are sick and tired of being taken advantage of and being treated as though they live in political fiefdoms rather than in communities that actually have a right to representation and representatives who enunciate the values of those communities rather than just kind of holding on to ideological inheritances from previous eras as many of those people were perceived to be by electors that rejected them. Just as we go, Liam, I'm giving you another uh, historical fact to think about. The 1969 federal election versus the 2019 federal election, a very close result. In, in both cases, and then the 1972 election where Labor won and the 2022 election where Labor won. Uh, have a look at some of the issues and, and the votes and where they fell. There's more similarity than you might imagine. Yeah, it's kind of amazing the way certain themes in politics keep on uh, repeating themselves. Uh, you know, obviously, there's, you know, there are significant differences between these eras, but there are also connections particularly, I think, in that sort of point about what democracy is actually supposed mm. to be doing and what the democratic system is supposed to be doing. And democracy is something that needs constant rejuvenation or it falls into disrepair and decay. Like, it needs to be used, and if it's not used, then it's something that's going to um, decline. It's not going to be as effective. Yes. And I think one important thing that you can see, that counts for internally in the political parties themselves, that they need to, you know, internalise uh, democratic methods that are going to allow them to uh, represent the community effectively but also the way the system itself functions and, you know, the two-party system and so on and so on. But I think that one of the biggest lessons from that sort of era um, was that when Whitlam came to the leadership of the Labor Party um, in 67, he had a clear idea when he got there about what his values were, yes. but also how he was going to realise those values practically through government. And that's one of the things that I think is always that big challenge is how do you connect the big picture, the value-driven sort of agenda with you know, the pressures of government, because government, you know, to be fair to politicians, I know they don't always get a good rap, but the reality is government is extraordinarily difficult. Yeah. And like, I wouldn't be in that job for like a billion dollars, you know, let alone what they get paid because of you know, how difficult it is and the demands that it places on you. 
But you need to have a guiding star that sort of drives you forward and you know which way you're going to go, even while you're dealing with the sort of like pressures of the moment. And I think one of the, you know, the enduring sort of questions about these sort of um, great figures that we see in our history, like Whitlam, uh, we'll, we'll see if Anthony Albanese becomes one of those figures, is how do you connect that broader vision to the immediate day-to-day and make sure that those two things are always working towards uh, each other as much as possible and not against each other. And really, a lot of democracy, I think, is giving people the faith that the day-to-day operating of the system is going to deliver something bigger, which is a better society that we can all live in with decency, uh, dignity and respect uh, for one another, which too often in recent years, that is not what the system has been delivering. And I don't think it's surprising that that's why cynicism towards our system has been growing. Liam, we're out of time, and that is a great segue. Our next guest is Rachel Payne from the Legalised Cannabis Party which is, you know, policy and how you deliver it and the result of elections. Rachel was elected. Unfortunately, Adam Somurek was also elected, but, you know, there you go. Thanks for talking to us, Liam. We'll speak to you again soon. Fantastic. Thank you so much. It's a real pleasure to be here. Cheers. You are on SatMag with Macca and Nevena. This podcast was produced by Joy Media. You can support Joy's diverse sound and diverse community this June by donating to Joy Radiothon 2024. Go to joy.org.au slash radiothon. And remember, we all flourish with joy.